40 years ago, we could make a great sweatshirt in North Carolina and price it at a price that my mom could afford that would last me for a decade and get better with age. Yeah. And here we were 40 years later, and I was being told we can no longer do that as a country anymore. That seemed insane to me when I was reaching for an iPhone that I had you know, the world's music on it and all the information and directions to my meetings and all that sort of stuff, that we were no longer able to make a sweatshirt in North Carolina. Bayard Winthrop got his inspiration from Silicon Valley. If we could put a touchscreen computer in the palm of everyone's hand, why couldn't we actually make the next great American clothing brand in America? So, five years ago, Winthrop shipped his first American giant sweatshirt made in the USA from domestic cotton. Now he's producing thousands of shirts, sweatshirts, jackets, and sweatpants for men and women every month. And it's not all lounge gear. He's just introduced the brand's first dress. This is Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I'm John Fort. This is a weekly podcast bringing you the highest achievers from business, entertainment, philanthropy, and sport. I'm going to learn how the very best climb to the top and take notes to help you up the mountain. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or Google Play. And once you've done that, tell a friend. These talks are definitely conversation starters. There's a lot of talk about bringing manufacturing jobs back to America these days. American Giant is actually doing it, and doing it the hard way. The company owns its own factories in North Carolina, where Winthrop says he employs hundreds of workers sewing clothes. How he's done it, from his San Francisco headquarters, will surprise you. Here's Bayard Winthrop. So I think, you know, American Giant is, is a digitally native brand, and, and what that term means is that we were founded as a pure play online business um, and sold only through our website. And, and one of the things that's interesting about digitally native brands is they, they offer the opportunity to really rethink uh, a lot of preconceived notions about businesses. And in our case, uh, you know, I felt there was a real uh, void in the market um, for really high quality American-made products at a fair price. And I was really obsessed early on with the sweatshirt category that I felt that it was a kind of an iconic American silhouette um, and that it had really, the, the marketplace had really bifurcated with sweatshirts, that there was a lot of really poor quality stuff at one end of the market and then a lot of stuff that was just wildly expensive on the other end of the market and nothing really in between and nothing American-made that was at all uh, uh, getting close to being good quality. And so the business idea really started with trying to deliver the best quality sweatshirts on the market, made in the U.S., um, and priced fairly in a way that could reach the mainstream consumer that wasn't relegated to boutiques. And, and the idea is, if you sell it direct, what, what in the media world is like self-publishing, then you can bring in enough of the revenue, enough of the profit, to be able to do those other things that you want to do in terms of quality, in terms of branding? That's part of it. I think the other, the other part is that I think there's a really fundamental shift underway in the marketplace uh, driven by consumers that I think that, and you alluded to this, that there is this increasing awareness among consumers to, and a desire to support brands that have values that they share, that reflect their own values, that are delivering on real quality. And, and a desire to direct their dollars towards those brands as a way to sort of say something about themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think I grew up at a time, I'm old enough to remember the great American brands, the you know, Levi's and Wrangler and Red Wing, and also old enough to, to, see, to have seen uh, the fading of what Made in America really looked like. And I think there is this sort of, um, I don't know what it is, this sort of cultural desire in America around supporting American-made products and sort of having that manufacturing component to be part of who we are as a country. Yeah. And so I think if you, if you do that well, um, you give customers the permission to support the brand, and that, that also helps run the business differently. It, you become less reliant on massive marketing budgets or huge store rollouts that require you to spend a whole lot of things on things other than the making of the product itself. And so that's part of it, too, that it, it's, a, it's a more efficient business model, but if, it also allows you to do things that resonate with customers more uh, that can make the business run more efficiently, in my opinion. And you source your cotton from the south, from the Carolinas, right? P predominantly. Almost all of our supply chain is southeastern-based. We have a okay. little bit of stuff in the L.A. basin. Uh, we have a little bit of stuff in, in Philadelphia. But the vast majority of it comes up, up, up through a southeastern supply chain from the cotton in the ground, through the ginning and the yarning and the dyeing and the finishing and the cutting and sewing. You're based in San Francisco. We're based in San Francisco, yeah. Now, San Francisco's an expensive place to be. Yeah, I right. know. I used to live in Northern California. Uh, and it's not 
what people tend to think of when they think of the sort of made in America renaissance. Yep. They think California is practically Asia, <laughs> right? right? So I think, how, how, how did this become important to you? What's your story? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you, know, you know, I think I think that for me, I, I've spent twenty plus years in manufacturing consumer products, and, and for almost Where? for all those twenty years, I've I've been a part of and led businesses that have taken domestic production, and moved it overseas. Give some examples. What, uh, what? I, I ran a company called Chrome that was a accessories and uh, bag and footwear and apparel business. I ran a company called Freeboard that was a, a skateboard business. Um, and, and others, and, and I, uh, Atlas Snowshoe, which is a great uh, outdoor equipment uh, manufacturer. Um, and, you know, I think you run, it certainly happened to me, you begin to accept as um, a foregone conclusion that, that if you were to be effective, you had to move overseas. Mm -hmm. But you spend enough time in San Francisco and around Silicon Valley, surrounded by people that are constantly rejecting preconceived notions. They're constantly- toast. The, well, <laughs> <laughs> That's the bad example. <laughs> the better examples might be, you know, the iPhone, where you see things that are impossible to imagine, led by men and women that really um, see opportunity, not hurdles. And, and, and some of that, just by being there, and you know by being there, but it's, part, it's in the water there, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think in my case, it caused me to ask a question, that here I was surrounded by all this incredible innovation, and yet, the industry was telling me we could know, 40 years ago we could make a great sweatshirt in North Carolina and price it at a price that my mom could afford that would last me for a decade and get better with age. Yeah. And here we were 40 years later and I was being told we can no longer do that as a country anymore. That seemed insane to me when I was reaching for an iPhone that I had you know, the world's music on it and all the information and directions to my meetings and all that sort of stuff that we were no longer able to make a sweatshirt in North Carolina. And that really was, that provided, the, I think, in a lot of ways, the emotional energy around starting the company that I just felt that was crazy. And I wanted to solve that problem and deliver a product that I was proud of that was domestically made and priced fairly. So um, I think it helped in that way. I'm not sure I would have founded the business if I was living in the Carolinas. So what example. year did the company start? 2011. Okay, so you're looking at six years old yep. this year. Shipping product in 2012. So shipping, shipping okay. Product, yeah, shipping product for just. just so we'll say we'll say five year yep. anniversary of the product because yep. that's really when when yep. you start thinking about something. Yeah, that's in right. In my mind, isn't really when yeah. you set the clock. That's it's right. when you ship. That's right. So five years shipping. Uh, I've seen some numbers out there saying you're doing some multiple every year. Where are you in terms of? Sales, as you can tell, I know you're private, so you don't, yeah, you're not going to open up your books and give me all your numbers. So give me a sense. Yeah, we're pri we're private, and we're we've been backed by uh, family offices, and so we we're particularly private about top line numbers. But you know, the the business is growing. Uh, very quickly, we we grew six. Can you give me six, some, you know, in the last three yards years, of yeah, yarn sure, or sure, number of sure, sweatshirts? Sure, we we produce uh, how many stadiums full of people? <laughs> we you we produce many thousands of sweatshirts a month out of our manufacturing facilities that we own in North Carolina. So we own our own factories. We employ hundreds of sewers down there. Um, the business has grown about sixfold over the last three years. So we're growing at a really really brisk rate. Mm. Um, and I think interestingly along those lines, I think one of the things that happening in Made in America in a, in a bigger way right now is that you have this interesting confluence of things that are coming together. You've got, in my mind, uh, uh, the consumer audience that is asking for it in a, in a more vocal way than they have for many years. And five years ago, they were asking for it vocally, and that's accelerated. Mm. You've got an administration that's come into office now that is talking about it a lot. It's sort of bringing it front and center. You've got a commerce secretary that is coming in who has spent much of his career owning domestic businesses in the textile space um, that is relooking at a lot of dis trade agreements as it relates, I imagine, to textile. And so I do think we're heading into a time where there is this, and the most important one of those, by the way, in my mind, is the customer piece of that, that customers saying, I care about this stuff more. Hmm. But I think we're heading into a time where it, we're seeing maybe the next great Made in America moment coming. Um, and I think technology and what the What was the last great well, I think in, in my mind, you know, there was a time maybe in the 1950s where the, the Made in America brand really represented not just great quality, but great value, right? And I think that we, we forget that people used to come to this country to buy things, not just for the quality, but that it was great value. And, and in my mind, the way that, that, and I think there's an awful lot of rhetoric coming out of Washington that is just, frankly, rhetoric until it becomes something. Right. But, but if, if business owners and CEOs and entrepreneurs can begin to deliver on the Made in America value paradigm, and I think we think a lot about that, about pricing our goods in a 
really value-oriented way that can reach a mainstream consumer, if businesses can deliver on that, I think you're going to see a next great wave of American manufacturing. I think if we can't do that, if we are always sort of talking about the lowest common denominator of U.S. manufacturing, I think we're not going to see it. But, but I'm an optimist on that. So on a sweatshirt, on a hoodie, how high can you go and still be value? price-wise? That's a great question. I mean, I think you know, the, the apparel market is a very segmented market, right? There are very big businesses at the, at, the, at, the, at the entry point, right? Sweatshirts that are $19 to $29. You see a lot of players there, Walmart, uh, Kmart, uh, Target. And then there's the middle players, uh, and you can put in there Gap and Abercrombie and many, many others. And then at the high end of the market, maybe you've got Ralph Lauren and J. Crew, let's say. Mm -hmm. At every one of those layers, there are big businesses that are emerging, right, or that are sustaining or that are growing. Or, um, we like to be at the at the premium end of that middle segment. So we, we think of as comparable brands for pricing, uh, Levi's, Abercrombie. So our, our marquee sweatshirt is an $89 sweatshirt. I would argue that it's the, it's the best sweatshirt on the market almost any price. Okay. But at that 89 price point, you're you're sort of below Banana Republic, you're around Levi's, you're around Abercrombie, you're sort of right in that range. And, and I like that because I think, I think at that paradigm, uh, we, it gives us the ability to really invest in great materials, great fit, great trims. Um, and deliver something that is truly special on the market. We, we, we don't want to and are not trying to compete at the value end of the market, mm -hmm. and we don't want to and are not trying to, to compete at the premium end of the market. So I don't know if that answers your question, but we, yeah. we want to be sort of what we think of as at the premium end of the mall is where yeah. we want to be. 15 years ago, I would have said yeah. you're nuts, $89 yeah. Yeah. for a sweatshirt. Because I thought uh, I, I needed four sweatshirts in like different colors, maybe two of the same color because one was going to wear out. But then at a certain point, it was like, yeah. why am I buying two of something? Yeah. Because something's yeah. going to wear out. That doesn't make, and, and so I started looking for things that would last. And now I say, hey, if I trust your brand and your quality, if you've got good customer service, where if I call you and say there's something wrong with this, you're going to replace it, you're going to send me another one, $89 for a sweatshirt, sure. You know, jeans, I'll spend 100 bucks or more, absolutely, if I know that it's a good product. Is that the trend you're talking about? Well, that's an interesting insight. I mean, I, th I think that what you're saying is really happening. That conversation is beginning. There, there's, I would argue there's sort of two parts of what's happening in apparel today. There's the fast fashion movement with a heavy emphasis on, on newness and, and freshness and, and less on maybe quality and value. Right? And that's a a fascinating and interesting segment of the market, a good growth piece of the market. And the other piece of the market, I think, is what you're getting at, which is a maybe a heightened sense of consumer awareness around saying, I want to buy fewer things of higher quality mm -hmm. that I know are going to last, and I want to support brands that are going to stand behind them. So in our case, you know, we, we have a lifetime guarantee in our stuff. What we mean by that is we don't want you to ever feel unsatisfied or unhappy with that product. If our sweatshirt in four years, something happens, a grommet pulls out or an eaglet comes off, you send that back to us, we're either going to repair it or replace it for you. And that's a philosophical difference, I think, for us in terms of just feeling like quality really does, quality is value, right? But it is, we also recognize that $89 is a, is, that's a big number for a sweatshirt, right? It may not be as big as 129 but it's a big number. It's a big number. And I think that, I think that the, you know, we, we laugh a lot about this internally because we oftentimes will have customers that will say to us, boy, I thought that was expensive until I got it. And then I got it, and I thought, this thing is going to last me for 10 years, whatever it is. So, so it's a, it's a, we think about that a lot. We think we, there's always this, a bit of this sort of alchemy with every product we look at, whether it is a $19 or $24 t-shirt that we're making, or a $59 or an $89 sweatshirt we're making. There's a lot of discussion, and a lot of it is just sort of theoretical and subjective about, is this the kind of product and price where when John gets it, he's going to think, wow, this is great. And we want to be in that zone. And it, the minute that we as a business start to price things at a place where you get that sweatshirt and you think, eh, we're done. And so we take that pricing and value and quality paradigm incredibly seriously because we get one shot with you as a customer, right? We want you to really get it and think, this is unlike something that I felt in a long, long time. And we're trying to get that moment with you and do it again and again and again. Okay, so we talked a little bit about the making of American Giant. Tell me about the making of Bayard Winthrop. Uh, where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Connecticut. I, uh, I had sort of a, a relatively um, maybe non-traditional childhood. How so? Uh, uh, folks got divorced when I was young. I had, a, I had a, uh, some great education that was paid for, but a home life that was maybe a little different than that. And, and, and so I, I, at a pretty young age, became pretty focused on um, making sure that uh, the, my mom and was going to be financially secure, and, and growing up in Connecticut, right outside of New York, that looked a lot like finance. And is that and, like Greenwich? Yeah. Well, I grew up in. I was yeah. born and raised in Coscob and Riverside and Old Greenwich in that that region, and and uh, 
And so that world, the successful people in that world, with a handful of exceptions, were bankers, were people who worked on Wall Street. Right. Yeah, and so that, into Wall Street. Yeah, and so that at a young age, I thought that that's the trajectory I'm going to get onto. And I was a terrible student, you know, I, I, I didn't like school, <laughs> and so I was not going to get into that job on the merits of my academics. And so, um, starting in high school and all the way through college, I started interning at a bank uh, in New York. How'd you do that? In the, I had a friend's father who had worked at the bank who. Uh, had looked out for me for a long time, still does to a certain <laughs> degree, and uh, and made a phone call and said, hire this kid for the summer and, and let him come in and work. And it was literally in the mailroom the first year. And I did a decent job enough so that they asked me back the next summer and the next summer and the next summer. And I eventually... How did that work, though? I mean, so you say you weren't a good student, but you were a pretty good employee. Was there something different in the mindset about being in the mailroom and, and what you saw as the concrete end goal? There? there was for me, certainly. I mean, I remember feeling uh, throughout college a real desire to get out of school and get to work. All through, all through my, even into my, my mid and later high school years, I, I never felt like I wanted to be doing. Um, and, and I don't think I understood then really the importance of, of doing something where I, I felt like I was making versus just working. And I think that was the problem. I got into this banking job. I found they, they offered me a job at the end of it all. The bank where you The bank did. And, and, and I got that job and almost immediately was just had this sort of palpable sense of, oops, that was a mistake, not for me. In part because I felt like I was trying to be people that were better than me at it. And in part because I, wasn't, I didn't get up every day wanting to go do it. And so I finished my tenure there and, and left with sort of a vague notion of, of wanting to get to something a little bit more tactile, where so I was what actually year was something. Then, yeah. 91, 92, uh -huh. 92 probably. Okay. And, um, and moved, ended up moving to San Francisco. It wasn't even my original plan. My original plan was to go to the Pacific Northwest, to go to Seattle. I thought there was sort of interesting opportunity happening up there, and I got a phone call saying, hey, I need a roommate in San Francisco. How about that instead? <laughs> and so that's how I ended up in San Francisco. And I, I randomly got a job at a, at a company called Atlas Snowshoe that was a, new, a very young um, startup, manufacturing startup, and I convinced them to offer me a job doing whatever they needed to get done. And were you outdoorsy? How did you end up? Not particularly. Out? It no. was more that I was really inspired by what these guys were doing. It was a couple of guys, a couple of young guys, one guy out of the Stanford product design program. Um, and they had brought some interesting um, uh, engineering thinking to snowshoes of all things. And, and, one, and one of the guys had designed a, a mechanical advantage in the binding of a snowshoe that allowed you to move through the snow more efficiently. It, hmm. it required less output. And I just, I love that idea, that they're they rethinking something, they're bringing some fresh eyes to it. And I started working there and, and loved it. I didn't want to leave, I was good at it. Um, and a few years later I was running the sales and operations of that business and learned more than I ever imagined I could learn and, and was suddenly applying to business what I had sort of learned theoretically in all the financial training. Where did and, the uh, learning switch flip for you? Uh, you know, I think- Because school wasn't doing it, right? Was there something in actually being out in the workforce, was it the paycheck? Was it something else? You know, there was, it was for me, it wasn't the paycheck. It, there was something about just getting into the work. And you know, I, I, this may be an inelegant analogy, but, but uh, I was talking to a waiter last night where I went out to dinner and he got done with telling me 18 things that were on the menu. And I asked him, how, how do you do that? How do you, how do you, to, you know, keep all that information in your head? And he sort of gave me a couple of answers and then he said, but we also spend a half an hour every night going through with the chef and tasting what we're eating. And, I, and for me anyway, that was like, that, that would be it for me. Yeah. That that's, now I understand it, that sitting there and tasting the food and hearing the chef talk about it would bolt that knowledge in for me a bit. And so it's, it's something in there about going downstairs and being on a manufacturing floor every day and talking to, get working on the line, hiring a sales rep, getting out and talking to accounts, meeting customers that made it all real and tangible and exciting for me. And I never looked back, I, I, I did well enough there that People took some notice, and, and I and I uh, was asked to go run a company, and um, and that sort of sent me down a career path. And and if, you know, it's you just find these. I was lucky enough to find something that I loved, and I've been doing it with a with one exception, almost all in the manufacturing space. I had an internet company that I sold to to Disney a long time ago. That was a, a not a manufacturing business, but. How'd you end up with that kind of anomaly? Uh, a network of folks saying this is a guy that can come in and, and you know, he's not going to make a fool out of himself. And, <laughs> and so someone, someone gave me a shot at doing so that. So you became a, a management ninja in effect then. I mean, so something about, I mean, if you're one of those guys who they bring in and say, hey, he's, he's going to be able to make the 
trains run on time and get this place into shape for the next stage? I think it's that. I think, you know, and, and I'm sure your business is just like mine, just like ever. I think that, that people that can be tenacious and can stick to things and can, and can work through the problems, uh, I think it's, it's and more... And can communicate. And can communicate. I think it's more those things. You know, can, can hire good people, can give direction, has a point of view. Um, you know, I, I don't want to subscribe to it more than that. I think it just requires a certain amount of just kind of competitiveness and tenacity and leadership and, and um, wanting to go in and all that stuff that, that I think indexes you to more towards success, right? When, when I talk to people about their paths, a lot of times we, we focus on how did you get to the next job, but we don't talk as often about how did you leave the one that you had to leave. And I've seen people in my career leave places badly. Did you learn anything about how to leave? Uh, the guy that, that, that got me the job at the bank, uh, my, first, my first summer job, he gave me two pieces of advice that I've kept with me my whole life. One was my, my first boss there was a tough guy, a Marine, ex-Marine, and I'd, I had to be at my desk at 7 in the morning, and I'd walk up there. He, he was probably, he seemed a lot older, but he was probably two years older than me at the time. So he was 20, you know, he was, you know, 21, I was 17, whatever the math was. You could still smell the gunpowder. <laughs> and he would say to me, I'd walk in, and he'd say, the first day I'd walk in every day, I'd get on the 40th floor of the office, and he'd say, hey, go get me a coffee and a bagel. And it used to drive me crazy. And, and so I talked to this, the, Jay Hubbard, this mentor of mine. I told him that story, I was sort of venting one night, and he looked me back at me and said, make it the best cup of coffee he's ever had. And that's always stuck with me. It's just a way to think about the good and the bad of your work. Do the best possible thing you can do at that moment. That was one. The other one was when I decided to leave, he said to me, good endings, good beginnings. And that has also really stuck with me, that leaving to me in some ways is more important than the beginning. That, that um, you know, I think that the vast majority of the time, people are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to kind of, and I think that to, be, to remain conscious about that and to bring the best uh, presumptions about people and intentions serves you well. And so... Um, the, the bad way, right, is when your boss, your employer feels betrayed by your leaving. The good way is somehow you have them cheering you out the door. That's right. Feeling like it makes them look good if you do well in this next thing. Yeah. And I think part of that, too, is acknowledging what you are taking from the place that you're leaving and deploying into the place that you're going to. And so I think you know, part of that, at least in my mind, is about acknowledging and being thankful and grateful for the things you've learned, the good and the bad, the things you've gone through. And at least in my case, every one of those experiences, and oddly enough, it was the tougher experiences, I think, that were probably the ones you take more away from, right? Where maybe you were less successful or you failed or you didn't do as well as you'd hoped. Those are the ones where I think if you can be, if you can remain, if you can keep your perspective on it, those are the ones in some ways to be most grateful for. Um, what are a couple of the best mistakes you made pre-American Giant? Pre-American Giant, I, I think that um, uh, in the internet company, uh, I went in, as a relatively young guy, I was probably 26 at that time, and I, I felt like I needed to make a lot of personnel changes. And I, I made some decisions quickly that uh, after, the, you know, after being there for eight or nine months, I realized I knew almost nothing coming in the door about the internal workings of it. And so that lesson really was about slowing down and observing for a bit. Um, and not so you fired some people too quickly? Fired or demoted, or reorganized okay. a bit. And, and just thinking that, and it was really the reorganizing, that, that one person in particular stands out to me, that, that I felt that he was really not pulling his weight. And it became apparent to me eight months later that he was probably the most important person in the organization. Why? And I wasn't, because he was a, he was a cared a ton. Um, and had been there for a long time, so knew the rhythms of the place, and wanted to build a great business. And so that's just such a unique thing in an employee, right? Someone that wants to work hard, that cares a lot, that's got some perspective and that wants to go win. And um, he's a guy, he's a dear friend of mine now. And, and So how were you measuring at the time that caused you to think that he wasn't pulling I away? think it was just, it was, it was a com combination of trying to apply some basic metrics about, you know, how is he driving the sales of the business and how's he been doing as a salesman mm. um, and a level of, of, of hubris, right? Just sort of feel, I know, I got this. And, and you just, I just don't think you do. Is, sometimes maybe you do, but I think it's important to remember to pause when you go into a new organization about what you're going to do. Um, I think that was a big mistake. I think another mistake was I had a manufacturing business that I probably 
uh, it's a good business, but I probably stayed with it longer than I probably should have my own personal career. I think that um, recognizing, too, when you've gotten the most out of an organization that you can and, and deciding when it is time to take the next step, I think I let that one go for you know probably two or three years longer than I probably should have in terms of just my own shoulder against the grindstone there mm -hmm. trying to make it move. I Did think. that turn out worse for you or for the business? Uh, I don't know if it turned out worse for either one of them. I think I think that it was. I, I take that lesson with me, and so I think that was. I'm grateful for it. Um, I think the business is a good question about the business. I think that that new blood can sometimes be helpful to the business, and so I think getting me out of there was probably a good thing. You know, it probably brought in good, younger, fresher eyes on the problem. So it was probably it was probably good all around. I, the uh, if I could have remapped it, I probably would have gotten out of there a little bit earlier. But um, hmm. in a weird way, I'm grateful that I've now got that experience under my belt and won't repeat it. So tell me about this moment in America when there's so much focus on Made in America. President Trump brought it up in his inaugural address. Um, maybe there's a sense, you tell me, you're the one in San Francisco, that the, the Made in America idea is being embraced to such a degree by conservatives that maybe it doesn't belong to everyone the way it used to. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... That would be a real travesty if it gets up interpreting that way. My, my, I think about this all the time, as you can imagine. I, you know, I think one of the things that I think is a truism and is really important is that uh, culturally, uh, society benefits from an economy that has participants at all layers, including manufacturing and the making of things. And I think one of the things that has happened over the last 30 or 40 years is that the economy has shifted, for reasons we all understand, into more of a uh, software, engineering, consulting, financial type of economy and away from some of the uh, manufacturing piece of the business. And I think there is a loss for us nationally uh, the more that we lose ground on that conversation. Why? Because a lot of people in the Bay Area will say, well, it's all about the knowledge economy. Uh, you know, designed by Apple in California, made, uh, who cares where? I think that's a, it's a, it's it's a complicated conversation, right? Because I I agree that I I'm a I'm a I'm a free trader. I'm a believer in in uh, in the fact that that. Uh, uh, businesses like Uber, for example, will be additive to the economy over the long haul, even though it might in the short term be uh, be uh, losing some jobs. Mm -hmm. I'm making, I think, maybe more of a theoretical point or maybe more of a um, an emotional point, which which is I think there are, I think we as cities, as communities, want to have uh, a connection to the things that we are, are consuming and the making of those things. And I think that it, the more that we get disconnected from the actual work it takes to make a shirt or a sweatshirt or grow an apple or make an iPhone, I think there is a loss there. I think there's a loss in terms of respect for the products that we consume. I think there's a loss for uh, the impact and the skill that is required to make those products. Um, I, I personally feel like there's an overemphasis in this country on uh, college degrees and, and, and an underemphasis on uh, trade and skilled labor. Um, there's a lot of honor in, in work at every layer, whether it's driving a forklift or designing an iPhone. Yeah. And I think we've lost the plot a bit there on this obsession with college degrees and college diplomas and trying to accelerate, that there are great places to participate and be additive across the economy and just value in work. And so, um, and yet, you know, I think, and so, so, I, so one of the things for me, and one of the most, one of the best parts about American Giant for me, just personally, is being able to walk into a factory in Middlesex, North Carolina, and talk to men and women that are that have jobs now, and that are working, making so, so on sweatshirts, that have incredible talent, right? Um, uh, and being able to just be a part of that, and and talk to women that have been sewing for 30 years, and and walking me through changes to a sweatshirt that are going to make it better because of the knowledge that she has. And I think that that's, that I benefit from that. I think our customers benefit from that. She benefits from that clearly. She's got a job again. And so I think th those are just important. They're important at a micro community level in, in that town or in that county in North Carolina. But I also think it's important for us to be aware that when I buy this product, somebody's hands made it. It came from somewhere. And I can't make the economic argument behind that, I, but the emotional <laughs> argument I can make pretty clearly that, that I think it, it, it makes, it enriches my experience as a consumer when I have that connective tissue in place. What happens when somebody wants to sell you a robot that can sew that sweatshirt at the same quality level and you, you know, you put pen to paper and you... Doesn't pencil out. Well, what if it 
What if it does? That yeah, the meaning, robots get, yeah, the, the people don't pencil out. Don't pencil out. out, yeah. Yeah, good question. And, and, and I, I'll tell you that, that um, you know, we spend a lot of time in North Carolina, in our factories there, thinking about efficiencies, right? So, so for example, we've spent most, most of the last 18 months investing a lot of money into those plants, upgrading them, and making them more efficient. Um, for example, what, what, is that, what does that look uh, like in, little, in, in terms that don't compromise your competitive advantage? Oh, I won't worry about that. I worry about more sort of going into wonky terrain for you. But, no, but, no, no. but a lot of cut and sew facilities work on um, older approaches to sewing called batch, called batch sewing, a bundle sewing. It, it is, um, and there's problems with quality control there. There's, I would argue, with worker compensation there. So what, what um, is that? What's batch? Batch sew means that uh, you and I are both operators in the same facility. You're sewing sleeves and you sew a thousand at a time. So you sit there just so a sleeve. I just do the sleeves. Yeah, and, and then a, and I a thousand sleeves and... pile up, and you pass them, and I attach those sleeves to the body of the garment. Let's say, right? Right. The problem there's a couple bunch of problems with that. One is uh, the throughput of the line is gated by if I'm slower than you, all your sleeves are going to back up with me. There's quality control issues. If you go and sew a thousand sleeves incorrectly, I don't find it out until if I'm lucky they get to me, or worse, they get to the end of the line. Um, so. Uh, we are moving, upgrading the plants from that, and, and by the way, there's also huge work and process problems there. So as a manufacturer, I've got a thousand sleeves sitting there, and I've got a thousand body pieces sitting there, and a thousand cuffs sitting there, and so you've got massive amounts of, of cash tied up in inventory of, on yeah. the floor. Um, we're moving the plant over to a, to a team so uh, posture that uh, means a bunch of things, but it means upgrading the, the equipment in the plant, it means asking our operators to get out of their seats and stand up, which is a big thing. For a man or woman that's been used to 25 years of sitting down and sewing with a single operation, you're asking them to get cross-trained across multiple operations and do it standing. Um, so we're doing that. Is that all and good, or it's you all, say it's a uh, big thing? It, well, it's, it's interesting. You know, our perspective is it is all good. It means that that an operator can make more money because they have control over their own throughput. So our operators oh. are making more money. It also means that there are some jobs that get lost. So material handlers along the way, people that, that typically in the batch example were moving sleeves over to buyer to go sew, that job becomes no longer needed. In and my so, head, I'm, and I'm not clearly an expert on this, yep. it sounds like you're having people act less like machines and more like people. Well, that's right. And I think, I think that that's the other thing, is that your skill of learning how to sew a single seam on a sleeve becomes something of saying, we need you to be a seamstress that can work across multiple functions, um, really take on the responsibility of quality, take on the team dynamic of the other operators you're working with. And so I do think it is really humanizing. And interestingly enough, when we began to re-engineer those plants, the engineer that worked on it and the guy that actually did the machinery implementation for us said to us, you are going to get major resistance on the transformation of this plant until you get the first team running. And then everybody in the plant is going to be saying, convert my line, convert my line, convert my line. And that's exactly what's happened. So, so, so what was your approach to getting that first team up and running? Uh, we, uh, we, it's, it, I'm going to try to not get too detailed on you here, but we, there was about, at that point in time, probably 130 operators in the plant. And so we offered, we did a t-shirt line initially, so it required three operators, and we asked for volunteers. And we said, we think you're going to like it, but we want to try it. Train you requires these things. And of the 150, something like 12 volunteered. <laughs> and of those 12, we didn't want top performing operators or bottom performing operators. We wanted really average operators based on their efficiencies. And, and that's because we you just didn't want to, them to, you didn't want people to look at them and say, well, that's the best person. I'll never be able to do that. Exactly. And you didn't want them to screw it up. So <laughs> More the former. We, we, right. wanted, we wanted people to say, hey, that's Sarah. And Sarah's now making more money and she's enjoying it. And I'm a better operator or she's an average operator and I can then go and do it. Mm. And so we did that, and, and, uh, and that particular team, which is still going as a three-person unit today, is a t-shirt line down there, which is amazing in its own right, two and a half years, a year and a half later, uh, two years later. But they, it really did exactly happen like that, that the operators all began to say, hey, me next, me next, me next. And, and I don't want to understate the, the, uh, the impact of that. I mean, it really is a shift. If you can imagine a 55-year-old operator that has been sewing a certain way for a long, long time, to ask that operator to say, hey, all new thing here. That's a big change, yeah. mentally, physically, all those things. Um, and so the plan now is 95% um, team so now. And, and uh, so, so to your original question, um, we do look at efficiency all the time. The, the, the best thing I can do 
uh, for American Giant, for the workers at American Giant, is to keep our business growing and financially healthy. If I do that well, there are more jobs and more jobs and more jobs for this business. We've got 200 plus sewers in that plant today. Four years ago, there were about 25 in that plant. There was That parking lot was completely empty. Along the way, we've gotten more efficient, but we have in aggregate grown the business and grown the employee base down there. And so we are uh, pretty maniacal about being competitive on the manufacturing part of the business, in part because we think it's the best thing for the business and for our employees as we grow. What's your philosophy at this stage on investment versus profitability? Some startups go, hey, it's got to be profitable from the very beginning and stay that way. Some people say, hey, there's a rare opportunity to get to a certain point. We're going to be in the red for a while, and that's okay. Um, that's a particularly relevant question for a San Francisco-based e-commerce business, which is in the middle of what I think by any measure is a wacky investment environment. And what I mean by that is you've got uh, venture capitalists coming in, making uh, lots of very outsized bets on a bunch of businesses that are putting valuations through the stratosphere, that are driving losses, that are inconsistent with the value of what that brand is today or could become. Mm -hmm. and, and my personal take on that, and this isn't answering your question directly, and I will in a second, but my personal take on that is that that is a, that's a fool's errand. Um, you may get one or two businesses that break out, but you're going to wipe out a bunch of businesses in the meantime. And more importantly, you're going to orient businesses around the wrong things. You're going to orient business around growth, around opening up a bunch of retail doors. You're not going to orient them around how businesses get built, which is brand and product. And brand and product go through phases of rapid growth, slower growth. They require discipline, they require focus. And so I think there's a problem philosophically about what's happening out there, number one. Number two, to your question about growth versus profitability, I think that if, if it's healthy growth, if, the, if it is customer-driven growth that is pulling the brand forward, then I think sustaining losses for a long time is fine. Um, but I think the minute that you begin to get way over your skis to drive growth for some future payback, you get yourself into trouble pretty quickly. And I think that the role of capital in there is pretty important. Um, I, I wrote a, a book a couple of years, a year and a half ago, um, along with a, a venture capital partner at Kleiner Perkins, which is one of the bigger investment firms out there, yeah. venture capital firms, named Randy Commissar, who's, a, who's been a big mentor of mine and an important thought leader in my mind in, in the venture community. And Randy is the first person to, 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 to talk about this issue, about um, how capital can be deployed well versus poorly. And <clears throat> so um, I've been uh, lucky enough that people around me that I think help navigate that, that discussion around the role of capital, the role of losses and growth and all those things. Did American Giant change your view on that? We did. I mean, we made a very uh, conscious decision that we've held to, to, to be um, backed by a family office um, and not go after institutional venture capital um, for that reason. That I, I, was, I, think the, I thought the opportunity was going to be based on our ability to be really uh, uh, steady around delivering on great product. I remember I sat and I listened to Diane von Furstenberg speak um, a little while ago at a, at a Women's Wear Daily conference, and she said, it's brand and product. It's brand and product. And there's something remarkable about somebody that has had such a career mm -hmm. over such a long period of time, just sort of getting back to basics. And oh, I would argue that the people that have really made it through, that have made build, built great businesses, all fall back on that mantra, right? The ones As opposed really to, I mean, it's brand and product. I mean, it, it sounds good, but you know what I don't know, which is, what it's not. What, what, what is she saying? What resonates with you? It's, it's brand and product, not what? Not distribution, not volume, not what? Well, so she was ask, answering that when asked how she's managed to, to you know, just bring that brand back again. Mm -hmm. um, so she was answering a different question, but she was sort of saying that, that it, 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 it is, at the end of the day, your customers are going to judge you on those two things. As opposed um, to? As opposed to uh, raising a lot of money and saying, we are going to go build our customer file by acquiring customers as fast as we can through aggressive marketing. Or we're going to go roll out 50 retail stores and drive our top line, despite whether we know or not whether we can justify having that many retail doors. Um, and so I think a lot of, you're seeing a lot of froth in the e-commerce space, particularly about businesses that have gone through these steep growth curves and then flattened or declined or gone out of business. Yeah. And, and I think in there are some hard discussions around how much of that was the, thinking about the right decisions for your customer versus making decisions about your business to drive the growth of your business on behalf of your investors. And I think if you're in the latter camp, uh, it's very difficult to navigate that. Well, it doesn't mean you can't, but it's just very difficult to navigate it effectively, and you have to be the dramatic exception to the rule to make it through in, in the latter one. So talk to me about product. You got 
sweatshirts, hooded, non-hooded. You got t-shirts. What else? What else? So the business started in, in 2012 with men's only sweatshirts, and that and we you know spent more time than I care to talk about getting that sweatshirt right, um, and, and we uh, had a bunch of articles written, including Farhad's, uh, that really put the business on the map. And it was one of those moments in the business that you know some amount of business success is just luck, and me calling Farhad on the right day at the right time and getting the right reporter and that wanted to dig in was one of those moments for us. Um, we added women's Farhad Manju from the New York Times, yes. Times, who is a, just a he's you know he was of, fast company at the time maybe he was uh, at Slate, Slate at the time right, right and and just something caught his attention and he decided to dig into a story in a way that uh, I wish more reporters and media did. He really wanted to get underneath the sort of first or second layer, um, and and so that put the business on its trajectory. We added women's in 2013. We added T-shirts in 2013. Today, the line is uh, is almost equally split men and women. Hmm. Uh, we have jackets and bottoms and waffles and polos and T-shirts and sweatshirts and and sweatpants. And so the line is bigger today, um, but it is still. You know, we we give or take release about three or four important new. Uh, products a season. And three or four. Three or four, that's it. And we start those seasons with maybe 25 or 30. And so we go through this really aggressive editing process, back to the original conversation that we were having about deciding where can we come into the market in a way where we can deliver something that is truly special, where John's going to open a box and say, huh, that's just good. And that process requires an awful lot of no's and only a handful of yeses to get through. And so we've got a couple of nylon jackets coming out this spring. Uh, we've got uh, our first women's dress coming out this spring that's a knit dress. Wow. And so those are... That know, had to be one. I mean, how many cycles was that on the drawing board before you it, said, or your team said, yeah, now we can do that? Tons. Tons. And these are, by the way, I think these are things that go through... Oftentimes, so that the nylon jacket, for example, came on to the to the uh, the product potential board three years ago, mm-hmm. and it got it didn't make it through for a variety of reasons. By the way, it could be that the supply chain wasn't there; we couldn't find the right nylon supplier. Um, tons of reasons can impact it. Dresses, particularly, was um, in our mind. Fa- fabric really is at the foundation of almost everything we do in the right fabric. And, and we found a really beautiful knit fabric for the dress that took us a long, long time to develop. Um, at a time when we felt that the silhouette of the dress was perfect and timely, and so it was just an alignment of things. That, and it took a long time and a lot of, you know, a lot of internal conversation about the people on the design team and, uh, and our fit models and our designers saying, this is it finally, and we're ready to go. But but also, I mean, and I don't mean this if it sounds to like a like a lowbrow comment. A lot of your product line reads like things you wear to the Super Bowl party. Yeah. And then you've got this dress. Yeah. Right. It's different well, in that so, sense. Just it, at least it sounds different to me. Yeah. I love. It's really great to hear reflected back from customers and other people just observationally how the line is perceived. I think that's right. Two comments about that. One is I think that. Uh, the fashion market is changing. It really is becoming what what I wore to work 20 years ago is not what I'm wearing to work today, right? Mm-hmm. I wear a t-shirt and jeans to work. And things like sweatshirts and t-shirts and leggings are becoming now the working uniform, the day in and day out uniform. And so the, there's a macro change happening about the sort of Super Bowl thing, right? That mm-hmm. um, we have always been obsessed with uh, we call it the in-law factor, that I want you to put on a sweatshirt where you go to meet the in-laws and you feel like you're fine wearing that sweatshirt, you look good on. I was talking to a, to a reporter earlier today and she was saying, we sent her a pair of sweatpants to review and she said, I wear these to work. She's like, I'm embarrassed to say I wear them to work, but I love them. And so I think, I'm fascinated by that, which yeah. is there's nothing inherent about the sweatshirt silhouette, sweatpants silhouette or the sweatshirt silhouette that should say to you, you need to look sloppy or, or slouchy in this thing. You should look good in this. So that's one thing. The other thing is that the brand, we really have taken a point of view with the brand about, we want to dress you for, for capability, for work, uh, to be able to do the things that you need to do in your day. And mm-hmm. so this dress is not a... a uh, 
plaid, paisley, fruffily dress. It's a knit, simple dress that you can wear a hundred different ways. You can wear it with jeans or leggings underneath. You can wear it just as a dress. And so it's got a quality to it that I think is really consistent with the line, which is this, I want to, I want to dress you in the things that you're reaching for day in and day out. That staples. This, the staples. I don't want to mess with the fashion industry. Uh, I'm not smart enough. I'm not fast enough. I'm not good enough to be over there. But I do want to give you the things that every day when you go to work, you, you almost have to stop yourself from grabbing the same pair of leggings from us or the same sweatshirt from us every day. And the dress fits into that category really, really well. Surely you must have had jeans on the drawing board. I mean, when, when people think about materials and jeans, you think about Japan, perhaps, especially in the category that it sounds like you're talking about, but you're all about made in the USA. So, I mean, you haven't done it yet. What are your thoughts? Uh, I will. I'll leave it here. <laughs> I think that that jeans are are uh, even more so than the sweatshirt. The iconic American silhouette. Uh, the jean category, in my mind, has become stuff at the value end of the of the category that falls apart after a, a year if you're lucky. I won't even look at that terrible end of the category. Terrible. Yeah. And then the boutique end of the market, it is selvage in Japan and wildly expensive. The fact that there is not a mid-level player producing phenomenal denim in a simple and straightforward way to dress him and her, I get confused thinking about the high end of the marketplace and all the choices around selvage edge and this and that and this. Basic, straightforward, great made denim to me is a huge opportunity in the market. But it's tricky, especially women's jeans. Denim is tricky. Because the, you know, the, the shape issues, even with men now, you've got the straight jeans and the skinny jeans and the, the boot cut jeans. Yeah. I mean. Some of that's worthy, right? So, some of, some of, of saying I have to accommodate three, four, five body types is worthy, right? Um, and I think that denim is tricky, but so is all apparel. Dresses are tricky, sweatshirts are tricky. In some ways, sweatshirts, though, the denim community would tell me I'm out of my mind. In some ways, sweatshirts are more tricky, I, I would argue. Um, I just think that there's a lot of, you know, our $89 sweatshirt has a huge amount of needlework in it, a lot of paneling, a lot of fit considerations. I think one of the things that was terrible about the sweatshirt category is uh, you did not have a sweatshirt available to you that you could put on and you could look good in that, that showed your shoulders and your waist and wasn't blousey and didn't, make you, didn't fit you terribly. Getting that to fit correctly takes time and, des and design and energy and, and fabric control, right? You've got organic fabric that is twisting and shrinking and kind of keep getting a good, good, Dye saturation, so you've got good color on the sweatshirt. Doesn't 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 fade over time, and all those things require a heck After of a lot interview, of. I'm going to go buy one of your sweatshirts. <laughs> I'll send you one. Uh, <laughs> no, no, so, I'm going to go buy. So, so, so I think that the, 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 the there is it is complicated. Denim is complicated. The, the opportunity, though, is um, there needs to be a great American brand building great denim in this country again, and that's not happening at any scale at any price point that's reasonable. And I think that represents a massive opportunity. All right. How long are we going to have to wait? <laughs> uh, no comment on that. It's, 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 we've got a lot to do before we go to get into that. Okay. I'll leave it there. Okay. Um, so that, that was, I guess, one of my ways of asking what's next. What's your employment number look like, and where do you expect that to be four years from now? We are. So, so we've got our offices are in San Francisco. We've got uh, 42 people in our offices in San Francisco. And... Um, and I think we're, uh, we're maybe a little bit, I think we've always run the business um, leaner maybe than we should be. We've always been sort of behind, I think. In some parts of that, it's been really great. It's, it's, it's forced us to uh, make do and, and to really identify the places where we really need resources. Um, you know, I, I think that we are at a time where um, the old world apparel brands are going through, with a couple of exceptions, are going through uh, profound and disruptive change. Mm -hmm. And so you've got all the mainstream players that are really struggling. And they've got massive real estate burdens and, and marketing challenges and brand resonance challenges. And on the startup side, you've got a handful of brands that have really caught fire with customers. I personally feel like um, uh, there's going to be uh, the next great American brand. And so I think there's a huge opportunity out there. Um, I think we've got uh, an opportunity to run for that opportunity. Do you want to be a public company at some point? Or can a company with your values perhaps not go public because of investor pressure 
to go cheap? It's a great question. I, I, I think that uh, remaining private uh, keeps many more options on the table as um, from as the, through the way I view the world. I think I think a business leader like Yvonne Chouinard is liberated to make decisions on behalf of his brand and his product and his people um, that a public company CEO has a much, much harder time doing. And so if, if as a brand you are able to remain private and not need to go to the capital markets for capital, uh, I think it's a better choice. It allows you to be a better steward of uh, the brand. A lot of entrepreneurs in your area, if they get the right amount of clout, Mark Zuckerberg comes to mind, the Google guys did it earlier on, they can maintain voting control while still going public. Does that become more of an option if you feel like there's at least that layer of protection? Yeah, I think so. I think you know a lot of that goes for many of those examples that you're citing, I think, have um, really outsized capital needs for their businesses. Um, and I think that you, if you are in a situation where you need to raise a lot of capital to roll out a big retail chain rollout, for example, uh, if you had the ability to say, I'm going to re retain voting control over the business, I think that's a good, out a good outcome. We're lucky enough to have um, uh, a group of investors around us, uh, led by one family in particular, that is absolutely um, as maniacal as I am about the importance of product and quality. And so I think collectively, we really have been in absolute lockstep with one another about how to grow this business. And so I think that that is, if we went down that road, that would be a possibility to retain that within the group that owns the business today. That's um, very theoretical and down the road, obviously. But, but I can just tell you that right now, the business really does have a tremendous amount of focus and emphasis on, on, on that. Um, so we'd be very reluctant to partner with somebody or, or the public markets if it diluted that focus. Well, I gotta go order this sweatshirt. So, Bayard, thank you. Thank you, John. For sitting down and sharing all that. It's thanks for having me. My thanks to Bayard Winthrop. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. And check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, and Periscope, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. I tackle the biggest business and economic issues of the week with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Next week, Sue Decker made a name for herself as an executive at Yahoo. She left eight years ago when somebody else got the CEO job. Decker now serves on the boards of two of the most powerful companies in America, Costco and Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. She's also served on the boards of Intel and Pixar, where she was personally recruited by the late Steve Jobs. Don't miss her insights into her latest venture, building a lasting reputation, and remaining resilient. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, or fortknox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.